You're listening to episode 108 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. It is the 19th of August as we record this from a grey and rather sultry Norwich. How are you doing today, Steph? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. I'm quite relieved it's not as hot as it was last week, to be honest. Yeah, no, we've had a little bit of rain and thunder, which has made things far more tolerable. It has, it has. Yeah, I feel like uh, people always roll their eyes slightly at, at Brits complaining about the heat, but to be fair, it was 35 degrees, which was the same as places in California and hot areas in like Eastern Africa and stuff. So I think it's fair enough, you know. I think so. And it's very, very humid here as well. It's suffocating. It's not even the, the actual temperature. It's everything that comes with it, I think. Well, we've we've accomplished talking about the weather. Yep, well done us. Before we get into anything else, just wanted to say thanks to Mark Carew for his very nice reviews of recent episodes, the Sarah Perry and Ema McBride episodes. Specifically, uh, he left us glowing five-star reviews, which made us feel great. And he also really noted Sarah's point about characters and how writers interact with them and the notion of whether characters kind of take on their own lives independent of the author, which is obviously something Sarah was not subscribing to. Uh, be really interested to hear what other people think about that. Um, and if you would like to share anything, then do head over to our Discord chat area. Uh, we actually have over 200 people in there already, which is very exciting. And it's packed full of really interesting conversations. We've run a few writing sprints. If you go in there to the Writing Sprints channel, you can still find the prompts that we used. So if you want to catch up on those, you can. And of course, we're running the book club in there at the moment as well, where we are all reading Bluebird, Bluebird by Attica Locke. So yeah, if you want to get more involved in our community, that is the place to be. You can find a link down in the show notes. Uh, Steph, what's been going on in the land of Noirage? Well, we've had two exciting bits of news. We've added a brand new online workshop with Jacob Ross, who is an award-winning novelist that we've had at Noirage before, actually. He, he did a great event with us a couple of years ago. So Jacob is running two online workshops. They're two hours long each. He's, uh, the first one is on the Friday, on the 11th of September, and then the workshop's being repeated on Sunday, the 13th of September as well. And Jacob will be looking at how to write credible characters, which links quite nicely with what you were saying about Sarah Perry. So the key to a successful crime novel is often in the creation of these characters. So Jacob's going to be exploring techniques and approaches to developing unique and memorable characters. And he's also going to touch on plotting and structure as well. So these places are filling up very quickly. It's online, as I say, so you can take part in these workshops from anywhere in the world. Head over to the Noirage website, noirage.co.uk, to sign up now and check out the rest of the programme. And yesterday, we also announced our two virtual UNESCO City of Literature Writers in Residence for the festival this year. So last year, we had Yersir Sigurda Dottir as our physical writer in residence who was staying at the cottage in Norwich with us. This year, because the programme is online, our writers in residence will be taking, taking part from afar in their resident cities. So we've got Anita Terpstra from the Netherlands and we've got Paddy Richardson from New Zealand and they will be creating new work for us and fostering connections between Norwich, which is England's first UNESCO city of literature, and their home cities, which are also UNESCO cities of literature. So we're thrilled to have them on board. Both will be writing some articles and features for us for the Norwich website and they'll also be taking part in some interviews on the podcast. So tune in over the next few weeks and we will be chatting a bit with each of them. 
Yeah, very exciting. That really kind of encompasses the international flavour of the festival this year. Uh, you know, we've always had people come from other countries to Norwich for the festival to take part in panels and conversations. But because we're all being forced online this year, it actually kind of opens up more opportunity to, to do that kind of thing. So that's fantastic. And Jacob's workshop sounds great as well. I think that's going to be of interest to people regardless of whether they're writing crime fiction or anything else. Absolutely. And don't forget that all of our author events at Noirage will be streaming on YouTube and they are completely free to sign up and watch. But we do encourage that you register in advance so that we can send you the link directly 24 hours before the event starts. So head over to noirage.co.uk, check out the program and sign up now. Talking of free stuff, uh, we're also putting together our next Early Career Writers Resource Pack. So if you look on the website, you can find our previous ones, which focused in on beginnings, method, plot and character. And next up, we have world building, which is something I'm particularly excited about because as a writer of fantasy and sci-fi, you have to do a lot of that. But obviously, it's not exclusive to genre fiction. And there's a lot of great people getting involved to provide very good advice for that pack. That will be coming out around mid-September. So do keep an eye out for that one. Right, so on to today's episode. And Steph, you are hosting this one in your conversation with Eliza Clark. So tell us what this was all about. Yeah, so this was a lovely conversation I had a few weeks back with Eliza. I'd just finished her debut novel, Boy Parts, and was really keen to talk about it. So Eliza is a debut novelist from Newcastle, who's currently living in London. She works in social media marketing, and she recently worked at Mislexia as well, which is the women's creative writing magazine that we've done some work with before. In 2018, she received a grant from New Writing North's Young Writers Talent Fund, which is something we talk about in our chat together. Um, her novel Boy Parts came out last month and it's received a huge amount of praise from the likes of Jessica Andrews, Julia Armfeld, Lara Williams and Elizabeth McNeil. And the book is described, and I've taken this from the back cover, as, quote, a pitch black comedy, both shocking and hilarious, fearlessly exploring the taboo regions of sexuality and gender roles in the 21st century. So it was lovely to chat to Eliza. Our conversation covered uh, her path to becoming a novelist, the feedback to the book so far, which has included some some surprising author comparisons, I won't say any more, her use of comedy and horror and her experience as a northern working class writer, which also features quite heavily in the book. So over to my conversation with Eliza. Well, Eliza, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on this really, really hot morning. Hello. (laughs) It's lovely to have you. Um, So I've used this interview basically is an excuse to break my book buying ban and get boy parts because I've really, really been looking forward to reading it and I blitzed mm-hmm. it in about two days. I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, um, so before we get started uh, and talk a little bit about your writing journey so far, tell us a bit about yourself in a nutshell. Who is Eliza Clark? I am uh, 26. I live in London with my partner. My day job is in art marketing. Um, I'm obviously a debut author. I like uh, horror films and um, cold weather, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> Rather than this intense heat that we've got at the moment, I think every time I record a podcast, actually, the weather just goes really freaky. It's 
It's a complete nightmare. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you're speaking to us from London. I assume you've been working from home during this time as well. Yes, I have. I was lucky enough to be furloughed for about three weeks and then I got mm. yanked off it and some of my colleagues are still on furlough and I'm incredibly jealous of them. <laughs> I think the three I was off on furlough for three weeks as well, actually. And that was it was kind of nice because it was basically like a little holiday. I don't Yeah. I was I also starting to go kind of mental toward the end of it. Like it was, it it wasn't the funniest thing. <laughs> no, it's kind of it's nice to have a bit of structure, isn't it? Even if you're <laughs> you're doing it from home, um, that's brilliant. So if we start a little bit about you mm-hmm. before we speak about boy parts a bit more, I just wanted to ask about your writing journey so far. So have you always been passionate about writing? Has that been something that you've always done? Yeah, I I pretty much always have wanted to be like a writer in some capacity since I was um since I was a kid really. Um like I just used to I used to tell people that I wanted to be an author when I was little and um I think like whenever I was sort of presented with the task of writing a story at school, mine would always go on for like pages and pages and pages and pages and I'd never finish it. Um I did kind of deviate from it ever so slightly uh, when I did my degree because I ended up doing fine art, um, which is basically around A-level. Uh, I was kind of beginning to have my first sort of mental health issues, so I, I was doing quite poorly with English, and I was kind of under the impression that one needed to have like an English degree and do well in that set subject to be able to kind of be a professional writer, so I sort of drifted away from that a bit um and uh art was going quite well for me at the time so I sort of did that but I was always very uh like not very focused on what I wanted to do as an artist and then I ended up being a lot more interested in like critical theory and writing essays and everything just ended up circling background to to writing I suppose yeah it's it's true isn't it you kind of I don't know whether it's the way we're brought up in the school system but there's this expectation that yeah if you study English literature, that gives you the the technique and the experience yeah. to become a a writer or a, a teacher or a journalist. Those seem to be the other two things that you get out of doing an English literature yeah. degree. So, so when did you start to regard yourself as a quote unquote writer? I always think artists of all stripes often worry about referring to themselves <laughs> as a writer or a musician or an artist. You know, like you have to reach a certain a certain goalpost to start regarding yourself as that. Did you yeah. have a sort of milestone in your head before you regarded yourself as a writer I don't know um I'm not sure it's sort of strange isn't it like that sort of identity aspect of of it um I so I actually pretty obsessively wrote fan fiction for um (laughs) for amazing for being about from being about 14 to probably being like about 21 or 22 so um so much yeah, so I was like, I, I kind of regard this as my, you know, yeah, like Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours of practice kind of thing. Yeah. This is where I think I got my 10,000 hours of practice. Um, so uh, I was like, I remember there was, a, there was a point when I was sort of about like 18 or 19 where my fan fiction was starting to do quite well. And I was mm. like known in the fandom that I was in as like a writer. And I think that was the point that I was like, oh, maybe I am a writer. Kind of. <laughs> Um, but yeah, That's and then amazing. but then I did sort of drop off with it a little bit while I was at uni. So um, mm. I think I didn't really start maybe properly regarding myself as like a person who writes until I sort of picked it back up again when I was like 23, 24, which is when I wrote Boy Parts. So. 
That's lovely. The fan fiction element's so interesting, actually, because I guess that is a really nurturing environment to develop yeah. your craft, really, isn't it? I don't think I've ever spoken to someone else on this podcast about, yeah, the fan fiction element. What was your what was your fan fiction around? Did you have a specific fandom? This I is wrote... just me wanting to know personally. <laughs> I wrote for like a bunch of different things. So I liked um I liked Harry Potter a lot when I was mm-hmm. um in my mid to late teens which I know has become sort of slightly besmirched lately particularly but mm. also by the the read another book crowd I do think people mm. should read another book so yeah um, yeah. <laughs> um and then just kind of like bits and bobs really I think the latest thing that I was heavily involved in was there's um there's a, some video games called Dragon Age which sounds mm. exactly as cool as it is <laughs> and um I was I was really into those I think I was always quite like a bit more pretentious about my fan fiction than other people I was very much like using it to try and fix what I felt were narrative mm-hmm. problems in the um, in the in Absolutely. the source material I love that did you so you were writing fan fiction up until your early 20s and then that kind of dropped when did you mm. start writing again um probably around when I sort of so I got a um uh, a grant with New Writing North, which I, th- I think you wanted to talk about a little bit later, but I mm. was accepted on a New Writing North's um, Young Writers Talent Fund, which mm. at the time I think was still the Northern Rock Talent Fund. I can't remember if sure. I was like the last Northern Rock person or the first non-Northern Rock person, <laughs> but um, I was with them during that transition period of when they ran out of the Northern Rock money. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> so I um, and I I started doing that when I was like. Did I get that when I was 23? Yeah, yeah. So so about when I was like 23, um, I kind of, that allowed me to have like a little bit of space and time to um, go back to writing a little bit more, um, partially because the that sort of pot of money was kind of split up into two halves for me. So mm. one half was they trained me as a facilitator and I did some work with their Cuckoo Young Writers group. So I worked with like a professional facilitator who taught me to kind of just basically teach creative writing stuff to kids which mm. was really nice um but because they were actually paying me for that it meant I was able to drop a day at my day job which was oh, great at an apple store at the time oh. <laughs> so I was um like working basically I finished uni and I was working kind of bar jobs in retail and stuff so that meant I could drop a day at work and then I could use that kind of additional day off to because you know when you work in retail you never really have like consistent days off you do have some weeks where no. you just do like seven days in a row and then it can change so yeah. much can't it as well there's no set routine I guess you need well maybe not everyone but for some writers having that mm. a set space a set day a week or whatever um in order to focus on your writing must have been really important yeah definitely it definitely was for me and it was quite motivating even just working with like very young writers who are like mm. um cuckoos like 12 to 19 I think mm. um so it, even even that was just kind of nice to have like a bit of a space to think about it and then I moved on to um uh mentoring so where I was being directly mentored by uh, Matt Weslowski, who I believe you've had on the podcast before. Yeah, we have. And we had Matt at Noirage before. Yeah, he's a, and he does a lot of hybrid writing, doesn't he? It's really, yes. I can see parts of that in this, in boy parts as well. But um, yeah. how was that mentoring process for you? Oh, it was great. It was, it was genuinely just kind of life-changing the whole thing. Um, I really don't know if I would have picked writing back up so 
thoroughly without it. It's like one of these things where I've always known that like I was good at writing and I've always known that I um like enjoyed it and that it was something that like worked well for me but I struggled to kind of focus and I think particularly when you're like when you are almost like completely new to um to beginning writing and you've got like no support um I think it can be hard to sustain stuff just because even just through like your self-esteem being quite low around the work that you're putting Mm -hmm. out um so it did make like a huge difference um just kind of being like encouraged and getting like line by line edits so I knew that even if I was going to write something it was a bit rough then I'd have some notes on how to improve it and it would get better Mm. (laughs) yeah I guess it gives you a similar structure to having a a job in that yeah you've maybe got some deadlines you've got Mm. people to speak to or report back to and you can kind of set up more of a routine for yourself um I can see how that would yeah be really really helpful really beneficial and help bolster your sort of confidence and give you a bit more experience as well yeah Um, definitely so you began writing boy parts in 2018 so that wasn't that long ago what was the path for that novel yeah it was um it was quick I'm told (laughs) I think um I, I will like emphasize that it has it sort of came to be published through a series of like weird coincidences. So obviously there was the the new writing north stuff. So I um will say that I didn't actually directly apply for that. I didn't know that that existed. Um, mm. I applied for a job in new writing north, which I was I was kind oh, wow. of like massively underqualified for. I think it was one of their like programming um jobs for young people, and they interviewed me for it and um. I think the feedback was basically that it was a good interview, but I just didn't quite have like the level of experience or like focus that they were looking for. But they offered me a place on um, the Young Writers Talent Fund. Um, And I think then doing that and doing the mentoring made my CV a bit more attractive when I applied for Mislexia later Mm. in the year. So then I was working at Mislexia magazine, which is actually based in the same like office building as New Writing North. (laughs) So uh, I was working there and this was about maybe slightly over a year of working at Mislexia, like a year and a couple of months, I organized a pitching event for um, the, they have like some subscribers forums, which are behind a paywall. It's basically you pay like an extra 12 quid on your subscription and you get access to a bunch of like different events that were previously organized by me and are now organized by my replacement. (laughs) And uh, I organized, we'd done like a pitching event for literary agents earlier in the year. So then I organized one for indie presses. And meanwhile, I finished my first draft of Boy Parts in like December of 2018. And then had just been kind of like editing it and editing it and editing it and editing it and up into June 2019. I invited a bunch of indie presses to this pitching event and Influx, 404 Inc. and Fairlight got back to me. And um, Influx and 404 were doing the same event. And um, a lot of the, I kind of maybe put a little bit too much faith in the the ladies that were going to pitch and um, that they would like research 404 and Influx and like, maybe hold back on pitching like commercial fiction and stuff but they didn't and there there were loads of like pitches that didn't really fit what they were looking for so um kit and i think it was it may have been heather from 404 both posted almost immediately after each other 
like we're actually kind of looking for stuff that is like this this and this and this rather than sort of more commercial stuff and the this this and this and this was all just it was just kind of boy parts basically it was what both of them were looking for so mm. i um i logged into a sock puppet account um and i pitched my own book and both of them asked for it and um influx just went very quickly i think um i'm i'm not sure what happened that i ended up sort of at the top of their slush pile for the day but um kit read it and really liked it he sent it to gary and he really liked it and then they'd offered me um like a two book deal i think within about three weeks of that pitching event wow quick turnaround <laughs> yeah so so you set up a pitching event and ended up pitching yourself yep <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah that's great isn't it and I mean, it's a good point, though, because we we get asked about sort of grants and writing opportunities really regularly. And we're trying to develop lots of resources to help people shape their pitches to agents and publishers. Mm. And it is important to make sure that you're pitching to the right people, I guess, because yeah. as with a, you know any kind of job, you, you wouldn't go into it. You wouldn't apply just for any job ever. You need to shape your application. And I guess it, it is the same when when pitching a, a manuscript. But yeah, it is, it is sort of strange. It's like the, I'm aware that I've been like extremely lucky, even that I like snuck onto their 2020 list. I was lucky for mm. that because um, it would have been 2021 if they'd read it like a couple of weeks later. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's just like, um, yeah, I, I feel like I always want to emphasize because I'm aware that I am um, very young um, at, to be kind of having this level of like success, even in just having a novel mm. published at all. Um, that like sometimes you do just sort of crash into yeah <laughs> um, into this sort of thing I guess it is part yeah it is part hard work and your craft and putting yourself out there but also it can be the part the sort of magic <laughs> ingredient yeah, definitely. that yeah you have to you've obviously crafted a really fantastic book and put Thank all you. of your you know work and effort in there um and you have been you know applying for grants and doing all these things and there can be that added bit of magic sometimes as well it's sort of it's sort oh, of a yeah. mix of both isn't it yeah definitely in short if you want to get published in your mid-20s you should simply deeply embed yourself in a couple of different um creative writing organizations mm. <laughs> yeah I think it's a it's a good idea actually isn't it I think I think contacts and getting an idea of the industry and things like that can really help um on to boy parts then so it's generated a lot of discussion already and it's received some really positive reviews so that's fantastic and I wanted to begin with is it Irina how do you pronounce it, the it is Irina name? yeah Irina so she's the narrator she's the sort of quote-unquote protagonist although she's also kind of the antagonist to this story she's in her 20s she's northern she's navigating this world and an arts industry which is exciting and full of possibility but it can also be pretty frustrating um I wanted to ask first, how many times have you been asked or how many times has it been assumed already that you and Irina are one and the same person? Because this has come up a lot. I've noticed recently uh, <laughs> with the Desmond Elliott Prize, we had Derek Abusu win for That Reminds Me. And one of the first things he was asked quite a lot, actually, is, you know, there's sort of similarities between you and the, the narrator of this book. So it must be autobiographical. Mm. I think you faced that quite a lot, haven't you? Yeah, it's really irritating. <laughs> <laughs> um it's like I can I can kind of get what people are I can kind of get why people ask and like I know that it's it's like not usually done in like bad faith and I think it's like particularly when like 
maybe with so much I uh, I haven't I haven't read Derek Lewis's book but with like sort of more likable narrators I think it's like maybe not that but I do sort of I find it maybe like a little bit insulting when I'm a bit like I don't I mean she is horrible yeah <laughs> so like no <laughs> but um yeah no it, it it is kind of frustrating obviously there are some like sort of minor similarities and stuff or some some sort of autobiographical similarities mostly the kind mm. of being from Newcastle and going to art school in London stuff but um like no not really <laughs> and um it's very strange it's kind of I would I mean I'd imagine that for some writers especially with your debut books that you would you know to, unless you're sort of writing in a particular genre um you know, you're going to draw on those experiences that you've had, especially if your, you know, character is uh, a young woman, that, you know, you are going to draw on some aspects of your own life, whether it might just be location or, you know, your experiences as uh, as a woman. And it's, yeah, it's funny that th- that jump is made, though, and I'm starting to notice it more and more, actually, as we've worked with a few debut writers, is that that assumption is made quite quickly by <laughs> readers and critics. Yeah, I think it definitely happens more to, like... It, it does happen more to writers from like marginalized backgrounds as well I think like if um I think if you're a black author you're always going to get the like oh this must be based on your life and it, the same with women authors I think people feel and and I think I see it a lot with um with LGBT authors as well I just I feel like people are sort of almost emboldened to try and sort of box you into a sort of particular like marginalized writer group and that if you're a woman you must be writing about your experience of being a woman if you're a writer of color you must be writing about your experience of being a person of color and um yeah it's just something that like even with debut writers you don't I don't really think that you see it happen to male writers very often no I bet yeah yeah White male writers white, as well white just male writers <laughs> yeah yeah on on ask that question uh yeah quite as many times but it's uh yeah it was one of the things that I definitely noticed um and you touched on Irina being a you know a likable and a dislikable character what was the Mm. the process like for shaping her I read that you initially made her a bit more self-deprecating but you sort of later stripped that out what influenced that decision yeah I think just because I was sort of writing like I I feel quite drawn to like the monologue as a form so I, I it was just basically like this very extended dramatic monologue when I first started writing it and um it was in a voice that was like a lot more similar to my own so it was it was like sort of almost like self-deprecating and like a bit more like obviously self-loathing I feel like I feel like a deep self-loathing is very much at the core of our character but I think it was like a little bit more on our sleeve initially rather than something that was quite buried so that was actually a suggestion from Matt that I um strip out the the sort of self-loathing stuff and not self-loathing but self-deprecating and that like it did make a sort of a bit more likable and relatable but is that necessarily what I wanted from from this and would it make her a little bit more cohesive if I did um take it out so uh and then when I was kind of sort of the mentoring stuff had finished off and I was sort of the the training wheels were off with it effectively it was just like a process of kind of continually going over it and pulling out any sort of anxiety or any sort of um anything resembling like 
normal, polite, pleasant human behavior. So I think I think one of my that's gone. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. One of my kind of favorite things that I've done with it is that if you if you kind of look very closely at the book, you'll notice that Irina like never asks anyone for anything. She just tells them to give her stuff. So she never like asks, "Can I borrow a lighter?" It's always just "Give me a lighter," like that kind of thing. So is that something you went back through and kind of yeah tweaked, tweaked yeah, those much. tiny elements a bit? Yeah, that's yeah. How did it feel to spend so much time with someone who very much feels like the hero and the villain because she's very talented and charming and beautiful, but she is really frustrating and quite dislikable. Do you like her? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I sort of like. I I think she's really interesting and I really mm. like enjoyed the process of like creating and refining her but um I did start to find it like a little bit exhausting toward the end of mm. it like I think particularly when I was getting toward the end of my first draft and then when I was like five or six edits deep I was very mm. like I'm just sick of this woman <laughs> yeah <laughs> I bet do you I mean has there been reactions have people reacted in a way that they're almost surprised that she's so dislikable and the sort of the narrator of the story? Do you think there's still an expectation or is there an expectation particularly with sort of female leads in novels that they should be more likable? Yeah, I think so. I think um, people are always kind of looking for, almost always kind of looking for a narrator to be their friend particularly with female narrators and I think Mm -hmm. with the sort of advent of the kind of the like flea baggy millennial womany sort of like oh she's a bit rubbish and a bit sort of yeah I guess she's just a bit rubbish and a bit quirky and but isn't she so relatable I think there's a lot of that stuff kind of popping up at the minute um and I did kind of want to I wanted to kind of critique that as well because I think um you do see like a lot of protagonists from that sort of subgenre like engaging in like quite harmful behaviors and sort of quite damaging and unpleasant behaviors to the people around them that gets like very shrugged off by the narrative and is just very like oh what's she like <laughs> um so I did I did want to kind of look into that a bit more I think a lot of these this sort of stuff kind of tends to use like feminism as like a buzzy marketing word as well when there's like no actual engaging in like any political ideas it is largely just sort of like a woman being a bit rubbish and I think there is definitely scope for um media about women a bit being a bit rubbish but I'm not sure if we should be holding it up as like the pinnacle of feminist thought when there are like (laughs) actual feminist thinkers that are like engaging in um well feminism properly rather than just sort of like (laughs) writing things about women who shoplift occasionally it's yeah so I wanted to kind of take a bit of a maybe a bit of a microscope to that and sort of really zoom in on like what if we just had somebody who was you know doing very very harmful things to other people all the time and there was almost no reprieve for her like what what would kind of go into making it so there was very little reprieve and what would the people around her be like and and so on and so forth um without giving too much away so we meet Irina she's given this exciting opportunity to share her work she hits this downward sort of self-destructive spiral um and then we reach a point where again, without giving too much away, reality becomes 
a bit skewed or blurred somehow um, and her behaviours becoming more and more outwardly violent. And I think I found myself having to reread pages to see if if I'd read something incorrectly or if I'd missed something or because there were gradual hints that something wasn't quite right. Um, what was your approach to shaping the kind of trajectory of the novel? Did you you plan that kind of Irina's story and this break in reality quite meticulously? Or did you, what's your approach to writing a complete novel, I guess, and the shape of the kind of, the the journey that Irina takes? Yeah, so when I when I started writing the novel, I was actually working from like a very, very long short story that I'd written. So this started as like a 13,000 word <laughs> short story. So So the basic plot beats were actually there um so it started with I think you you still had the the basically the opening scene of the the novel you had the middle scene of the novel where she kind of has two photo shoots back to back that go quite wrong uh if that if that makes sense I feel like that's some good yes. vague talking around the yeah. uh, plot Very and good, then no spoilers, um, yeah. and then the stuff at the end with London was like more or less intact it was like her getting to the gallery and then it ended in her hotel room um so I did have like the bare bones of it there effectively and so it was just like a matter of kind of almost padding around it so the the flashbacky stuff was what came through first in terms of like actual planning but I don't I don't plan very meticulously I basically just kind of do like I'll do like a couple of um a couple of bullet points and then maybe a couple of sentences under the bullet points of roughly what I think is going to happen in that chapter. Um, but I don't stick to it very rigidly. I'm like, you know how they say you've got like a, you can either be like a planner or a pantser when you're a yeah. writer. <laughs> I, I think I'm like a little bit of both in that I'll, I'll come up with like an extremely loose plan and then not necessarily stick to it. Um, so the, the sort of weird uh, kind of more hallucinogenic parts toward the end, um, came quite naturally I actually wrote that sort of last eight to ten thousand word stretch in like one day so I am um, basically got up in the morning and um it was it was at a point where I had Fridays off work so I would um basically get up and I would go to um Flat Caps Coffee in Newcastle City Centre, and I would set up with my, um, I would set up with my iPad, which had a keyboard attached to it, and I would just sit there for like eight hours and write. And um, I was sitting there for my sort of usual eight hours, and it got to about four o'clock, and I think I kind of realised, like, oh, I think I'm probably going to finish this today. So, not wanting to outstay my welcome, um, as I had every week, I like went back to my flat and then I just think I sit and I think I just sat and wrote until like three or four o'clock in the morning and then I'd finished it. So um, it probably sort of partially kind of reads like that because I did write a significant portion of that first draft at like 2am. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the tone of the novel as well. So it kind of, it walks this line between humour and horror and uh, I was talking about uh, a Razorhead recently actually and that feels very very similar in that you watch a Razorhead it's pretty disgusting pretty horrifying but you end up laughing almost because you it I don't know whether it's funny or you just don't know what to do with yourself when you're watching it but um what are your thoughts about this the kind of relationship between humor and horror did you set out to write something that was dark and intentionally funny or did that kind of happen organically yeah no definitely um in that I've sort of set out to do it I am um, 
it's interesting to sort of bring up like humor and horror because those are the the two things that I like. Um, yeah, brilliant. In in stuff, so I do I do like really like a lot of um, British comedy stuff. Like I cite mm. um, I often cite uh, the comedian Limmy as like a big influence on my writing. Sure, love Limmy. Yeah. Um, oh, I it, love that as a yeah as an influence yeah, on your writing because he used to he used to do those. Um, Limmy's World of Glasgow podcasts, which were like extended monologues from the point of view of like a bunch of different characters, sort of very like Alan Bennett's Talking Heads, but like horrible. Yeah, <laughs> Alan Bennett's Talking Heads, but with more legal highs. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I was just obsessed with those. I used to listen to them over and over and over again when I was a teenager. I thought they were fantastic, and I just wanted to do something like that. And I think he walks like a really good line between humor and horror quite a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, I'm like, I'm really interested, I'm really interested and really influenced in horror cinema and um, extreme cinema. And quite a lot of that walks like a very interesting line between humor and horror. Um, like I, I think there's a film called Visitor Q, which is um, made by a really prolific Japanese director called Takashi Miike, who's like most famous for the films Audition and um and mm-hmm. Ichi the Killer actually. So his, his two films kind of visit a Q and Ichi the Killer um are sort of extreme cinema and often get held up as some of the best examples of the genre. And both films are like absolutely horrific and show like just some some like really, really intense violence and some really horrific acts of depravity but both films are also extremely funny and I think there was a point where I was sort of watching Visit IQ where like my jaw had just been kind of on my chest for like (laughs) 40 minutes and then you you, it's almost just like a switch flips and you just sort of start laughing at it and um I've always really enjoyed that sort of um feeling of like I don't know, I guess that gallows humour and that ability to see the absurdity in like even the darkest moments of um of life. Um it's just I don't know, I've I've just always like appreciated that. I don't know if it's just part of a of a coping mechanism. Um my um my grandfather passed away during this COVID pandemic and um there was a point where I was we we had to live stream the funeral. So I was like watching the funeral um, live streamed and it kept stopping to buffer. And <laughs> I just kind of, exactly. <laughs> so it was just kind of, it, it kept stopping to buffer. My next door neighbor's kids were playing on their trampoline. So I could just hear kids like screaming and jumping while my um, grandfather's funeral was failing to buffer. And, um, and I was sort of, very upset and I was in tears but I did just start laughing and and it's just I think that's kind of like I guess like a sense of humor that I do want to bring over into my writing I I think I'm funny and I do kind of find most things funny and I think I did really want to bring some humor into what I thought was going to be a very dark book um not so much to lighten it up but almost to enhance the darker Mm. parts that makes sense actually and I think anyone who's a horror fan whether that's sort of film or TV or literature or anything, um, I think they probably get that kind of, Mm. that very close relationship between humour and horror. And as you say, like sometimes when horrific things happen, I don't know whether it's a coping mechanism or Mm. I I don't know, there's kind of a, if you, yeah, if you don't laugh, you'll cry kind of. My my mum actually has always been very similar. I remember being at her dad's funeral and she just like 
absolutely creased her way through the whole thing. But it wasn't actually <laughs> funny at all, but it was, I don't know, it was, there were funny things. There were funny aspects to it. So that does, yeah, <laughs> make sense. Mm. Do you think of Boy Parts as a horror novel? Are you happy for people to regard it as a horror novel? Yeah, I think so. Um, I feel like, I almost feel like um, that can be, I feel like like authors of literary fiction often get accused of being a bit like stuffy and a bit like mm-hmm. turning their nose up at genre stuff. But I actually mm-hmm. think that really goes both ways and that you get a lot of like um, authors that write in the tradition of genre fiction being like very nose turny uppy at the idea of literary fiction. Whereas I'm, I'm quite happy to kind of occupy both camps, I think. But I could, mm. I could definitely see like a sort of very stuffy writer of traditional horror fiction being like, this isn't a horror novel. But <laughs> I think it, like, I'm so influenced by horror that I think it definitely like does sit at least adjacent to horror novels. Yeah. yeah. We just need to like bring the gatekeepers of literary fiction and the gatekeepers of horror novel. We just need to bring them all together and, you know, everyone just make friends. This is- yeah. <laughs> I was I was actually talking to Julia Armfield about this, who wrote mm. Salt Slow. And she yeah, said Salt that Slow. she said that she I think in her Guardian first book interview, when she was asked if her book was horror, she said that it was like not not horror. And that mm-hmm. it's like it sort of is, but it isn't. But somebody took that to mean her going, no, it's not not horror. Like it's it, like she <laughs> it's was emphasizing not. how extremely not horror it was. And like a bunch of sort of blokey horror writers kicked off at her. <laughs> and, yeah, it's like, it's it's a little bit weird, the sort of genre line stuff, genre discourse, um, mm. which, uh, yeah. Yeah, but no, I I really like horror writing. I'm like absolutely not offended by the idea of it being categorized as a horror novel. In fact, I almost feel like I don't deserve to be in the category of horror novel because I feel like there's not enough good scares in it. It could be a horrific novel rather than a horror novel. Yeah, definitely. I guess it's like with with your kind of some extreme cinema stuff, like you wouldn't Mm. say that come and see is a horror film Mm -hmm, but it's mm -hmm. definitely like one of the most horrific films ever made I guess if that makes sense yeah it does another thing and I guess this loops back to sort of assumptions being made about your your first novel but it's it's really interesting when this kind of when people start publishing reviews and feeding back on on your book and there's this inevitable comparison to other books or writers so the big one for you seems to be American Psycho yeah um, by Brett Easton Ellis which I mean it came as a bit of a surprise for me has this mm. come as a surprise for you were you expecting that that book I, to be floated around yeah it's weird every time somebody brings it up I have to say that I haven't read it so yeah <laughs> I have seen yeah. the film but I haven't read it and like I can like see the kind of the the sort of surface um comparison to it and that you've got mm. this like very sort of strong first person narrator who is horrible and then that kind of like gradual unraveling of their reality stuff mm-hmm. um but yeah I do think that there's like a lot maybe there is some more stuff that is going on <laughs> in my book that maybe isn't going on so much in American Psycho which again I haven't read so I suppose I can't really um I, I am working off like what other people have said to me about mm. it but yeah I, I have enjoyed people kind of having to basically there are two camps who seem to finish boy parts and go like oh this is like a sort of 21st century 
spiritual successor to American Psycho and then the other camp were like actually it's much better than American Psycho so um I kind of want to I almost want to be team actually it's much better than American Psycho but I've not read it so (laughs) the one that plays to my ego better I suppose um but uh yeah I, I I appreciate I appreciate when people say that they think the books are similar and I don't think that I would like pull that apart but I also appreciate like people who've kind of gone out of their way to explain why they think Mm. that it is um different slash better than American Psycho yeah yeah I guess there's always going to be an element of describing you know work as you know x by way of x because that's how I don't know just comparing art to other art is often the way we kind of I don't know explore things and it it gives other readers a sense of what to expect I guess but yeah um yeah have you has there been anyone else who's floated up quite a lot or is it um Atessa Moshfeg comes up a further which I I can definitely see again that's a that's Mm. a writer that I read after I'd written Boy Parts and Chuck Palahniuk's come up a couple of times which I was actually quite surprised by that's Um, so interesting isn't it yeah Chuck yeah, Chaplin and Brett Easton Ellis have come up as kind of... Yeah, I kind of don't mind mm. that, though. Like, I think I was... Because around the time that... Well, like, basically in the build-up to Boy Parts coming out, there have been quite a few novels by young women that have been touted mm. as the next Sally Rooney. And yes. I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been for those women. Because even if their book does sort of exist beside Sally Rooney, and obviously Sally Rooney is like a fantastic writer, so it's not like it, it is like kind of a high compliment. It must just mm. it must just really wind you up to be sort of set up as like the next ex when like yeah she's still kind of at the height of her career, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely in the the Sally Rooney sort of 2020 year aren't we if you if you're oh god yeah. young and female and writing you're there for the next Sally Rooney yeah so I was actually kind of almost a bit relieved to um escape yeah. the the next Sally Rooney mantle um not that again not that I wouldn't have found it to be a big compliment but um yeah I think I think sometimes it does almost feel like a little bit of a relief to be compared to like male writers particularly people who are so embedded in the literary canon um like Irvin Welsh has come up a few times as well because I think quite often people will go so far out of their way to like pigeonhole women writers as like the next version of the life it's like when when queenie came out and people kept saying that it was like bridget jones when it's like it's nothing like bridget wow, jones that is nothing like bridget jones <laughs> yeah. in the slightest i know it's 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 an absolutely insane comparison it actually it, it kind of put me off um reading queenie for quite a while because like um bridget jones is definitely not my cup of tea but yeah queenie that's not like your cup of tea. is mm. <laughs> um so yeah i think i think that can end up being that can end up doing like both right as a disservice but um yeah it's it's I suppose it's both that sort of like that kind of flattery of the like oh that's at least I'm not being kind of compared to like I feel like at least the comparison's not like lazy and it is writers that I maybe sit alongside a bit more but yeah, um yeah at, at the same time I think I would be like a little bit because I think particularly Brett Easton Ellis and, and Chuck Palahniuk, maybe not so much Irvin mm. Welsh, have kind of picked up this this reputation of almost being this kind of like obnoxious, like edgelord, yeah. very blokey um, mm-hmm. literature. And I, I sort of don't want people to think that I'm an obnoxious edgelord. <laughs> no, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, I can, 
I can see the the sort of I don't want to say late it's not a lazy comparison I can see the I can see why the comparisons exist. Yeah. And it, it's kind of, yeah, I can see that it's kind of nice that, you know, these are writers that are, are held in very high esteem. And, you know, American Psycho has been knocking around for years and it's still the kind of iconic text that people are being compared to. So it's yeah. it's great if people think that, you're, you know, you're up there with that and it's kind of, they're comparable. Um, but also, yeah, just everyone still being compared to... <laughs> To American Psycho and Train Spotting or whatever else is uh, yeah, gets it a bit is, old at the same time. I, I guess it it is nice to kind of feel like yeah, part of like you are part of like an entire sphere of literature, mm. and that you haven't been separated off by gender, and that yeah, I, I guess I think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I can see what you mean. It's not just a list of other women ha- who have written other books recently, even which like may or may vaguely not be similar. similar. To yours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Have there been any other reactions from readers and critics that you found to be quite surprising? Um, yeah, to be honest, I'm just I'm sort of surprised at how positive people have been, really. Mm. Um, I I was expecting because the the content in the book is is so challenging at times. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. I was expecting that it'd be more pushback at this point. And maybe the pushback is coming. So um check me <laughs> on that in like a few months. But um yeah, I was expecting to have had more um I guess like a lot more negativity at this point and a lot mm-hmm. more like I think particularly in the context of like like when um the Pisces, the Melissa Broda book came out mm-hmm. and like people mm-hmm. were saying she was like promoting animal abuse <laughs> and um the recently when like my dog Vanessa came out earlier this year and um there was the stuff with Kate Elizabeth Russell which I suppose if you had, if you're not aware and you're listening was basically she brought out a book about um a woman reflecting on a relationship she'd had with her teacher in high school and then a woman who'd written a memoir which was also about that um accused Russell of stealing her memoir and then a bunch of people accused Russell of like appropriating the idea of being abused and I follow quite a lot of people who know Kate Elizabeth Russell um, and have done for a while who are just kind of basically saying stop saying this stop saying this because you don't know her so stop saying this and then it ended up with basically um she had to put out a statement on our website saying that it was like based on a relationship she'd had with her school teacher mm. so <laughs> which yeah, is something I, that she shouldn't have to disclose no definitely like she shouldn't have to no one's business exactly it's- and I was I was really concerned that basically something like that might have happened to me mm-hmm. like um that I was going to end up being like bullied into revealing some personal relate some personal information that I necessarily didn't want to or that there was going to be some sort of attempt to like gotcha me but yeah maybe maybe that's coming <laughs> maybe we'll see fingers crossed it's not I'm sure it's I'm sure it's not has it been I mean of the, I, I haven't seen any negative reactions to this book, but ha, when there, if there have been any, has it been quite quite a difficult thing to to deal with? How have you have you found sort of dealing yeah. with the positive and the negative reactions? I guess it must be I quite overwhelming. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, it is very overwhelming. Definitely, the positive stuff's really overwhelming. The I've only actually seen like a couple of negative reviews, which um, 
when I'd mentioned this, I'd actually mentioned this on Twitter yesterday and it, it sort of, um, I didn't realize that like not looking at your reviews was like such this huge like golden rule. So <laughs> when I was trying to talk about it in the context of like, maybe we shouldn't make comments like this, particularly about women writers after like this stuff has happened to like Kate Elizabeth Russell and Melissa Broder and stuff. I was getting a bit of a like, ah, one should simply not look at one's reviews. Um, response which maybe not super helpful um but yeah like I had like one on I think I had one that was just like this is an American psycho ripoff and the prose is ordinary which didn't like bother me at all really because it is like at least a comment about the book but I had one that was like that like directly referenced my like woke twitter and then (laughs) said that there was actually lots of not very woke stuff in the book and then seemed to like kind of imply that I was like fat phobic and ableist because of the content in the book. Um, and I like, I, I didn't really, I, I kind of took that kind of hard to be honest, just because it felt like it just feels like so unfair when people can't separate fiction from you. And I, I, I really don't want to be like, not, I, basically I'd really like to be separated from my reader. I really don't want people to think that I'm like her at all. Yeah, absolutely. It's I don't know how many times you have to sort of wave the it's fiction flag. <laughs> yeah, and it, to, and it can uh, be cons- it can be really frustrating. Yeah. I think I'm just maybe a little bit edgy about it. And after the the Kate Elizabeth Russell stuff happened, like that was like in February. That was pre pandemic, so it feels fi- like it was fifty years ago. But it did happen this year. Yeah, and I don't know if having having social media and yeah, having sort of people having access to your archive of tweets or whatever that they can pour <laughs> over must I mean it's it's madness isn't it it's absolute madness but and such a waste of time but also <laughs> yeah I guess it it does open you up to being more vulnerable in a lot of ways definitely um so just a few more questions before we finish up uh one of the f- the funniest things but also easily one of the most horrifying things about reading boy parts is the reaction to Irina being from Newcastle especially when she's at the exhibition so you've got the the curator or whoever it is talking at her about how charming her accent is and the sort of repeated reference to the limited quote unquote limited opportunities outside of London so I'm gonna guess that this is something that you've probably encountered yourself I think you mentioned in your Guardian interview that um, Mm. you've been regarded as a a diverse writer because you grew up in Newcastle so what has your experience been as a northern writer living in London did this did this shape your did your experience shape sort of this commentary in the book Uh, yeah definitely I think the the experience is sort of sticking out as as like a northern person and like a person with a regional accent in general was quite formative for me in um in in London I think that yeah I I think that sort of strange like homogeneity that can sometimes pop up at educational institutions particularly when they are supposed to be like a very like broadening experience for you um can yeah, it can be really strange if you are on the other end of that, even in even in the slightest regard. Like, I imagine that I wouldn't have had um, like as strange an experience as say like any of the people of color on my course or any of the um, people who had like um, any of the international students on my course. But even then, it was just it was just that very strange experience of like. Um, walking into a room and being like one of like five or six people with a regional accent when there are like 150 people in there 
And like, um, one of my lecturers like told me that he'd never been north of like Cambridge before and just sort of thinking like well I, I don't I, a I don't know what you want me to do with this information and like b you probably should <laughs> it's not uh, a big country it doesn't take long to get anywhere oh no it's it? like it's like really not and it's just like it's not like it's not like there's nothing above the Watford gap you know what I mean like that it's it's, it's just sort of like very proudly declaring that as a man in his 40s he's never been to Manchester like who's not been to Manchester before that's like you've never been to Leeds you've never been to Edinburgh you've never been to Glasgow you've never been to um Greatest City on Earth Newcastle before like it's just it's just really strange and I've had that happen to me a couple of times where people have tried to describe like exactly how north they've been before and you almost just want to cut them off and be like I, I really don't care yeah. <laughs> like yeah, I never... one interesting thing to yeah feel the need to kind of relay to someone yeah, like, like oh you're from Newcastle here's all the places I haven't been yeah if somebody tells me they're from Surrey I don't go oh I've never been to the home counties why would I bother <laughs> so a f- just a couple more miscellaneous questions um we touched on this a little bit before but has have the jobs that you've worked in they've helped to shape your writing journey a bit do you feel like they gave you access to a few more contacts or sort of a better understanding of how the industry works oh I think it was a huge help I honestly don't think I would have been able to like I I don't think I would have gotten published had I not worked at (laughs) Mislexia um it's like uh or at least I don't think I would have gotten published for like another five to ten years definitely (laughs) um I think it's like just like weirdly useful how like just basically I I consider that I like worked at Mislexia for a year in place of a master's degree in creative writing I think it was like a great year-long crash course and like everything I could possibly want to know about the publishing industry um so that was that was like a really really useful experience for me I think it did also prime me a bit for like how not diverse publishing was like I think if I had not if if I'd like not worked at Mislexia at all and let's just say in like some sort of similar strange circumstances I'd been in the same position where I was my book had come out like this July I I like can't imagine how bizarre I would have found it for people to be like oh so as a as a university educated white woman from Newcastle, you are diverse, aren't you? And yeah. I, and I think I'm quite glad that I had the primer of like how sort of weird and inward facing publishing mm. is. Otherwise, I probably would have been a lot less like <laughs> I probably would have been a lot more um, hostile to that concept in interviews yeah. and a lot less able to like comment on how bizarre it was. Apart from maybe mm. just coming off a bit like, what are you talking about? I don't what. <laughs> Yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> a bit more prep time, hasn't it? Yeah, you could kind of prepare yourself for potentially those reactions. Yeah, definitely. Um, were, there, were there any resources that you wish you'd known about when writing this book or any that you did use that you think other sh- people should be aware of? Uh, stuff that I did use. Um, honestly, I, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, which I think uh... I was, in my head was research, was but was probably just more me wanting to listen to true crime podcast um to be honest I would actually I would actually recommend um a mislexia subscription to people Mm. because I I don't work there anymore I am not on the payroll (laughs) I just think it's a good magazine um yeah because I mean obviously I like I like proofread 
like five or six issues and um I just I just feel like I really learned like a lot about the industry from there I think in terms of like particularly useful pages that they've got like they have like a whole section that is just on like Korea they have a literary agent every issue who will like give feedback on a pitch and another one giving feedback on somebody's first page and that's really useful. Um, with the the Mislexia Max subscription, which is like the the forum thing that I used to look after, they have like monthly. Usually, it was monthly when I was there anyway. Like mm. monthly feedback surgeries on like pitches and cover letters and like Q and As with agents, and that was all just so useful to like be able to log into my sock puppet account and fire some questions at some mm. literary agents, mm. but also just to see like the other questions that people asked and their feedback. And it's just like to be able to get a sense of like what what like really annoys um people in the industry and what like really puts yeah. them off. So like things like um that you wouldn't necessarily know if you weren't aware of it, like um not sending a submission that isn't like directed to a particular agent. And they they absolutely hate that. <laughs> um, mm, but I think if you are mm. completely new to the industry and you were just kind of basically all you knew was that you needed a literary agent Mm. I don't know I feel like you might think that it was almost a bit invasive to address it to one person and just do a Mm. sort of generic dear agency here is my book and like I think knowing the all the sort of like weird unspoken rules of sending out a submission I think is really Mm. really useful yeah, there's some quick wins, isn't there, I think. Some, yeah, definitely. Some things you can do to really sort of increase your chances. And it's that, yeah, it's not just, I think that's often the thing we find is we, we're we not having lots, I mean, we do have people contact us asking for help sort of with mm. the actual craft of their writing. But a lot of it is sort of once you have got a completed manuscript, you know, how to find an editor or um, mm. how to, you know, sort of develop your own editing skills uh, how to uh, approach publishers and agents and things like that. So yeah, I think it's stuff like that can be really, really useful. And as you say, yeah. Ms. Lexi is great for that. There's lots of free resources online now, actually, and yeah, podcasts and things like that. I think are really, really. Hopefully, they're really helpful. Yeah, um, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. How did you? I mean, this is on a tangent, but it was just something I was thinking about. How did it feel to publish Boy Parts in 2020 in the midst of this? pandemic because I know you had to cancel your in-person book launch so that that turned into an Instagram kind of book launch and Mm -hmm. how has that experience been for you? It has been so weird (laughs) I think it would have been weird anyway but it's just the fact that it's almost like everything I'm everything's like confined to like my phone and like Mm. notifications and just like being like seeing stuff and being aware of it so it's I think like not really being able to have like FaceTime with people has been really strange in the last Mm. sort of couple of weeks I have been able to get around to like bookshops but even then I think because booksellers are often like so closely tied to the industry that it's like yeah it it does it's like different talking to a bookseller who's read your book than just like um a person who just reads so Mm -hmm. that's been that's been strange um I think what else has been strange is because it is because it's going quite well it's the sort of like everybody having like a really horrible time and then me kind of being like 
oh my god I'm like thriving (laughs) yeah everything's going so well for me (laughs) even though it is a pandemic (laughs) yeah so it's weird so it's like both the balance of like um I don't know there's almost like this weird feeling like I'm really like I, I I feel like I'm being really careful about like what I'm saying and how Mm -hmm. like openly sort of happy and excited I'm being because I appreciate that 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 is very obnoxious in in the middle of the plague year to be the like the only person that's having like a good time (laughs) um so and then also it has it has just been kind of rubbish like not being able to see my friends or my family like I haven't Mm -hmm. seen my parents since February um and yeah I I guess that is sort of I'm partially my fault for having betrayed um the the fatherland and moving down to London but uh (laughs) yeah it it has been like really weird just the sort of separation from friends and family and not being able to like celebrate not being able Mm. to celebrate has been weird as well like I think my Mm. partner and I went out for a meal the day after my book launched and even then that felt really weird because restaurants had only been open for like for like two or three weeks and we just kind of felt guilty that we were out and guilty celebrations yeah and it just I I don't know just felt bad it just sort of so it has been a real like weird mixed bag but it has gone great and I am really happy but at the same time it has been strange and I'm very conscious of like uh, I don't know being a bit like weird and braggy online when uh this is like an awful time for everyone Mm. I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think it's braggy. Like the world, the world is burning. We're in a The world is but burning. But also, you know, we need to, we should and have to celebrate like the really positive things that do happen to us. Like whether they're sort of, you know, shared experiences or successes that we have kind of personally, because I don't know, they get us through and, you know, life is going on at the same time and we should be, I don't know. It's just nice to see good things happen at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I hope so. That's definitely how I feel. Like I've been, Mm. I've been pleased to see good things happening to other people, Mm. but I know that it can maybe feel a little bit grating sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean, but um, yeah, it's, it's a well-deserved success. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And finally, what's, what's next? Have you got anything in the pipeline after this? Are you still just, yeah coming to terms with uh, the success and all of the the reaction to boy parts so i do i do allegedly have a second book out in 2022 um let's hope that i manage to get it written i think it's been like a weird thing this year that it seems like everybody's seems to have hit a bit of a writing and reading block um or at least people who write and read regularly i know that reading has like jumped up quite a lot maybe among like people who don't have that as part of their regular routine um but yeah ho- hopefully I'll be able to get that done I'm starting to get to feel like maybe maybe this was all a bit of a fluke and I'll never be able to write another book again um <laughs> so I'm definitely kind of feeling the second book the difficult se- second album if it as it yeah were. <laughs> yeah the second one is difficult isn't it and you're right though I think it's a funny time to be doing it or writing uh, writing or trying to create any kind of art because there is when we all went into lockdown I think everyone's gut reaction was like right I'm going to use this time to be really productive and I'm going to get loads of stuff done I'm going to try out all these things that I've never done before and then we all just sat there for about 12 weeks going oh my god this is awful I can't do anything it was kind of the expectation versus the reality yeah I I think so I think um I mean I, I do think like 
like this generation's particularly bad for like not giving ourselves free time and trying to make mm. everything like productivity and like everything has to be a side hustle and everything has yeah. to like come to something so yeah it was definitely like weird seeing the sort of glut of like it was almost like new year's resolutions wasn't it like what are we yeah. going to achieve during this pandemic but yeah like that that like few weeks I spent on furlough I literally just spent it like hunched up on my sofa I think I played through all of the Mass Effect trilogy and that was <laughs> that was what I did for three weeks I just sat and played like three back-to-back 50-hour games <laughs> I imagine that's what your brain needed to just decompress like yeah, I think definitely. I used my furlough period to actually come to terms with everything that had happened because I'd been so busy I hadn't really even stopped to think about it so it was as you say actually giving yourself some time to kind of I decompress, just come to terms with things, have some downtime, and then, yeah, there's plenty of time to be productive again when things pick up. But, um, well, brilliant. Good luck. I hope I'm looking forward to reading your second book. I'm sure it will happen in 2022. Let's Um, hope so. Yeah, it will be fantastic. And uh, it's been really lovely chatting to you, and hopefully we can have you back in the future. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you very much for having me. I am a a semi-regular listener of the podcast, so it is great to be on. Thank you. It's been lovely to have you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Eliza for coming to chat with us. If you have questions about this episode or anything else, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer's Centre. You can check out our Facebook page and you can, of course, sign up to our newsletter over on the website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, where you'll also find out everything that we're doing. And if you did want to join our Discord community, I highly recommend it because it's full of lovely people. You can do so by following the link down in the show notes. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.